You're listening to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the previous episode, we explored the life and times of Cher Height, who published what is perhaps the best-selling nonfiction book about sex that's ever hit the market. It was translated into several languages and sold 50 million copies. But in the half century since its release, it has been largely forgotten. However, it's back in the spotlight now with the release of a new documentary called The Disappearance of Cher Height. In today's show, I'm going to continue my conversation with the director of this film to dive into the story behind it. We're also going to talk about why this extraordinary woman seemingly disappeared from view and why her work is more relevant than ever. I am joined once again by Nicole Noonan, an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning documentary producer and director. She most recently directed The Disappearance of Cher Height, which premiered at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival and is now playing in select theaters. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Cher Height was a pioneer in helping us to understand women's sexual pleasure. However, in the half-century since her work first appeared, women's pleasure is something that remains almost completely neglected in traditional sex education. It's something people often have to learn about all on their own. So to make things easier, there's a wonderful resource I can recommend called Beducated. They have an extensive library of courses you can take at your own pace in the comfort of your own home. They have fantastic courses on women's pleasure that will teach you what you need to know about the female orgasm, the G-spot, oral pleasure techniques, and so much more. These courses are ideal for women and anyone who loves women. Try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, which I know you will, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy. The Kinsey Institute Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items at the Kinsey Institute Art Exhibitions at the Wilzig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Their next exhibit, titled Bettina Rhymes, Everything All at Once, opens December 4th. This exhibition features pieces by the renowned French photographer whose work subverted gender stereotypes and invited the observer to focus on the beauty and humanity of each portrait subject. Find out more information at weam.com. That's weam.com. Okay, Nicole, in the previous episode, we talked about Cher Height and her famous research and writings on human sexuality. So let's dive into the film you released this year on Cher's life. So as a starting point, tell us a little bit about when and how you first learned about Cher Height and what your reaction was to her work. I did discover the Height Report in my mother's bedside table where she hid things she didn't want me to see. It was always an interesting and exciting uh, thing to check into every once in a while just to see what was there. I remember opening up the Height Report and just feeling like I was Alice in Wonderland, like falling through a rabbit hole into a different world. You know, I was trying to glean things around about sexuality from the sources that were available to me, which were 
not very many. I would see our bodies ourselves. Um, my mom didn't have it. I think the drawings were too much for her, but a lot of her friends had it in their homes. And I might sneak a peek at that every once in a while. I would find passages about sexuality and and Frank or Judy Bloom, but otherwise, you know, it was pretty slim pickings. And then there was Cher Height, and that was everything. You know, it was um, it, everything isn't in that book, but sort of there's enough diversity, variety, and specificity that. The world of adult human sexuality just came to life for me, you know? So it was when I read her obituary in 2020 uh, and the headline said, in the New York Times said, Cher Height, she explained how women orgasm and she was hated for it. I just remembered that. I remembered those women and and I also remembered remembering them. Like I, throughout my life, I would get into a situation or I'd have a question or whatever and I would think about those particular women and the things they said and it really helped me. So I was sort of horrified to read about how Cher had been treated in her later life. And I was very, very curious about her and, and wanted to know more about who she was and how she had accomplished the work. And And that was kind of, I guess, the instigating moment for me around deciding to try to tackle this as a film. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sure if there were a copy of The Height Report around when I was younger, I definitely would have gravitated toward it. The only thing we had in our house when I was a teenager was this dusty set of encyclopedias in the basement, which did not offer much information on human sexuality. So <laughs> I checked the Encyclopedia Britannica too, and it, there was nothing in there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nothing helpful. But yeah, that was that was the only place that I could go until until the internet arrived. So thanks for sharing that story and for telling us a little bit about kind of the impetus for this film. So it sounds like you never had the chance to talk to Cher herself or introduce the idea that you were going to make a film about her life while she was around, right? No, I didn't. In fact, it was a very intense experience to try to come to know her and who she was because, you know, she had written an autobiography, which is really beautiful and very helpful, but there are no books written about her. And luckily she uh, negotiated uh, giving her archive to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe. And because of that, we were able to get access to so many things that started to fill in the picture of who she was. But quite honestly, like putting the film together was you know, we had six producers on the film. We had a graduate st- or a student at Harvard, Ale- an undergrad, actually, Alejandro Eduarte, who was brilliant, who was going in the archive for us because it was closed during COVID. We had so many people so dedicated and working so hard to try to go through this material and to figure out who she was. And then our extraordinary edit team and I think we all felt like there was this beautiful Greek vase that we were trying to reconstruct out of shards, you know, and we were trying to take this caricature of her, which we'd been left with, you know, was she kind of weird or cold or distant or just focused on herself? Was she doing this for the notoriety and fame? And why did she dress like that? And all of those questions, you know, we had to kind of unpack all of that and really try to see her for who who she was. And so even though I'm very sad, I didn't get to know her and I'm very sad she didn't get to see her story resurfacing now. I do feel like there was something very beautiful about having to have such an intimate relationship with her writing and thinking in order to try to get access to her story and who she really was. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about the process behind the film and how you brought this story to life. Because, you know, Cher was a unique person in terms of having this really voluminous media portfolio, right? So if you were going to make a documentary about someone, 
she's an ideal subject in the sense that there's so much that you can draw on from those decades of media appearances. And then in the film, you also have the fantastic Dakota Johnson giving voice to share his personal writings and, and talks in a way that really kind of evokes the persona and tone of, of share. And so, you know, ultimately it does create this really intimate and compelling portrait of share hype. But I have to imagine that that's a big process to try and do that because there's so many different pieces to put together there. Yeah, it was like years, you know. And I think what really saved us was that Cher was a little bit hypographic. She would just like write all the time, you know, and and in her papers, it wasn't just like her official papers and she wasn't very organized. So she kept boxes of things and Harvard took them and they were things like, um, you know, at the end of a long day of modeling, she would write about how she felt she was being exploited and her thoughts on, you know, kind of the patriarchy and how that shows up in advertising campaigns, or she would write on the back of an opera program about some new idea she had, or she would dash off a fan, like later in her life, you know, we found um, fan letters that she had written to people like Madonna with whom she identified in some way. So there are many, many things that we found that are in the film, but there were other things that are not in the film, but which informed our sense of kind of, you know, her sensibility and who she was. And then we had the good fortune of being able to track down a lot of the men who she had dated and who had been supporters and, you know, kind of colleagues, really like people who worked alongside her to try to help her do the work she did. And they turned out to be this unbelievably wonderful group of men um, who really believed in, in Cher's vision and were open-minded and kind of learning along with her. And Many of them happened to be photographers and painters, and they kept kept boxes of photographs that she'd kind of co-created with with them. And so we kind of knew how she wanted herself to be seen and what her aesthetic was and all of that. And that became very important to us as a theme to, to try to combat the double standard women are up against and that Cher herself suffered from so much by going back and saying like, no, actually her trying to dress and look like this kind of ethereal, you know, 1930s film noir star and just own that and be so uncompromising about her right to look the way she wanted to look was a radical act. It was so radical that the culture couldn't tolerate it. But looking back at it now, we can celebrate it, you know, and that gives me a little bit of hope. I mean, younger women are just like, oh, you know, she's wonderful. Like, where has she been all my life? And I love the way she looks and I love her clothes and her fashion and, you know, all of that. And I, I just think that's so much what we're, what we're striving for. If we're striving for equality is whether it's, you know, women's rights or queer rights or trans rights, it's, it's all about like the ability to just kind of express ourselves the way we want to and be whoever we want to be. Yeah, she was a unique person in so many ways. And I love that her work is having a, a bit of a resurgence now. We're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but her work is still so relevant, so timely in the modern world. Now, something we talked about a little bit in the previous episode was the hostility that Cher encountered in a lot of media interviews. So in your film, you show a clip from when she went on Oprah's talk show, and there was an audience of all men who were just gunning for her. And I got to say, it was hard to watch that. 
And it was hard to watch some of the other clips because it just felt like she was often being set up and people were looking for those gotcha moments. So tell us a little bit more about your reaction to going back and watching all of those media appearances and what you took away from it. I think one of the things that was most striking to me watching those old shows where shares being kind of torn apart by men is that I know that I would have seen that at the time as a young woman in you know my late teens and 20s and probably not thought much of it you know I probably would have thought oh she's a little weird and why does she dress like that and yada da for me it was an education in in the how the toxicity of that kind of misogyny and that kind of television really does seep down into our psyches in ways that we're not even really aware of, you know? Why didn't I want to identify as a hardcore feminist when I was in college, you know, in 1989 at Oberlin? I think it was because of that. I didn't want to be seen as unattractive. I I didn't want to be seen as weird. And and all of that is happening to her. And in going back and looking at it now, you know, you kind of watching it happen in real time and kind of see how it happens. And it's, it it is extremely disturbing. I mean, the, the Oprah show and then this show called leave it to the women where they have another panel of men kind of like this whole big panel and they're facing off against Cher and she's sitting in a little chair by herself, you know, and they're attacking her methodology, even though it's like the guy who played Buck Rogers and the guy who played a male stripper on, you know, young and the restless or days of our lives or something. And, you know, Michael Conrad from Hill Street Blues, like not exactly like experts on social science is truly disturbing. And and I had the feeling that it was really important to put in the film and for people to witness, you know, because I think I think you kind of see the seeds of the sort of post-truth world that we're in now when you look back at that. You know what I mean? It's like she's saying, look, this is what men really said. And they're saying, I don't know any men like that. And, you know, who are these weird men who would bother to fill out a survey and yada, da, 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 you know, and um, and many other, you know, questions about the data. And to me, it's like when I see Trump, who Cher Hyde actually practically predicted, she wrote towards the end of her life about how if we were going to calcify around this really patriarchal kind of family system and say like, no, we, we must live within these confines, then we were going to be making ourselves very vulnerable to authoritarianism because we were basically turning our back on democracy. So I think it's important and really urgent that we look at that, even though it's really hard to look at. Yeah. It sounds like in the process of doing all of this, you engaged in some self-reflection and you learned something about yourself in creating this documentary about someone else's life and work. So anything else that you took away personally from the experience of making this film? Definitely. I was so surprised how, well, first off, I mean, I don't, I never talked about sex publicly or with really with my friends. Um, but in making the film, we had to do that all the time. And everyone, we had a, a lot of people working on the film and I was really pretty intentional about putting together an editorial team and kind of our cinematographer was a trans woman. We had an editor who was in her late seventies and one in her forties and one in her thirties. We really 
had to have consciousness raising group types of conversations in order to make the film. And over time, the producers I was working with at NBC News Studios would say to me, like, my God, like now I just say words like <laughs> clitoris and orgasm, like it's <laughs> like it's no big deal. And I don't feel embarrassed of it. And isn't that great? You know, so I think all of us thought of ourselves as very like progressive and forward thinking and sex positive. But even still, you know, when I say clitoral stimulation on a panel, even if it's at the Sundance Film Festival, everybody titters because they're not used to hearing that, you know, and why? And many people say clitoris in all kinds of awkward ways when they're interviewing me. And I know it's because they've never said the word, like they've literally never said it. Can you imagine being in your forties and having never said penis? It's pretty crazy, but it's still where we are. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we need to normalize the clitoris. I mean, there are so many things we need to normalize when it comes to human sexuality, but many people just don't have the experience of talking openly about anything related to sex. So anytime you mention a word like clitoris, it does tend to evoke this reaction because it hasn't been normalized yet. And it's well past time that we work on changing that. So tell us a little bit about the relevance of Cher Height and her research in today's world. You know, as I was watching the film, I couldn't help but think about broader conversations we're having and legislation that's going on around us about reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights. So are there any important lessons from this story that you see as being relevant to modern times? I mean, sadly, it's like one almost gets the impression, and I think in watching the film, or I've heard this from people, that we feel like there's, look, we've regressed instead of progressed. And of course, that's not the whole story. We have progressed in in certain ways and important ways. But the leak about the Dobbs decision came down while we were midway through making the film. And by the time the film got out there, I was taking the film to the Cleveland Film Festival where people in Ohio are so traumatized by having seen really horrific, you know, physical things happen to people that they knew and loved because of these restrictive abortion laws that they couldn't even talk at the end of the film. Because I think because of that feeling of kind of like, is it always going to be like this? Like, even if we make a gain, is there going to be such a vicious backlash that we have to start all over again? And certainly like when I screened the film in Florida and there's a scene where Cher where Cher supports some colleagues of hers to go down and fight against Anita Bryant and her anti-gay equality laws in Florida. And Cher talks a lot about the weaponization of sexuality and how the right is, you know, if they're going to start a culture war, they are going to be, you know, talking about the contamination or corruption of children and things that are just literally exactly what's happening in Florida right now. So we put a piece in the film of the, which came straight from Cher, who wrote a lot about her horror at watching the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings. And so we put that in the film. And of course, that's incredibly triggering to people now, just to think about the fact that that happened and the fact that it resulted in Clarence Thomas playing such a key role in the rollback of women's rights. So reproductive rights. So all of that is very relevant, but I think the thing that is most important is that the way Cher was able to kind of step outside of society and and look at its constructs and challenge them from the point of view of really wanting people to be free of those things is very unique and still really empowering and hopeful, actually. So as much as we 
wanted people to kind of watch what has played out in terms of this backlash and rollback of our rights and and feel anger and really see it for what it is and be motivated to get out there and fight it. We also wanted to provide a little bit of a North Star and some inspiration in terms of like this, you know, incredibly brave person who was this really breakthrough thinker and who really, you know, she never gave up thinking that we could change. So hopefully we can all summon a little bit of our, our inner share height in that way too. Yes. If the time seemed to require it. That they do. And, you know, in thinking about the history of human sexuality, I've written about this uh, extensively in textbooks and talked about it in human sexuality courses. There's always this ebb and flow where you go through these periods of more sexual liberal attitudes. And then there's always some backlash to that at some point. And we're in the midst of one of those backlashes right now in various ways. But when you look at the overall arc of history, the backlash is temporary. It will recede at some point. It's just for many of us, it can't recede fast enough (laughs) because we're living through one of those right now. So your film is titled The Disappearance of Share Height. And we talked a little bit about in the previous episode why Cher kind of disappeared from the media scene. But she didn't just disappear from the American publishing and media scene. She also largely disappeared from the sexology scene. I mean, there's been pretty scant mention of her work in recent years. And when people talk about the history of sex, you know, yes, they're always going to mention Alfred Kinsey and Masters and Johnson, who were obviously important figures, but Cher and other women who made important contributions to the study of sex are often left out. And I actually have the third edition of my human sexuality textbook it just came out and i actually had added in the revision process that i've been working on for the last couple of years a whole section on hidden figures in sexology and i included a section in there on share height because i realized that it was an oversight on my part to not have talked about her or told her story in there and so when i saw that your film was coming out it was just so perfect that <laughs> i loved it Shara's work is kind of having this renewed interest, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on why Shara's work was forgotten even within the field of sexology for so many years, especially when you think about how it's so relevant to conversations that we're still having today about women's sexual pleasure and the orgasm gap, right? I mean, Cher was talking about this a half century ago. How did it get forgotten? Well, I would love to know your thoughts about it too. Like I I really, really genuinely would. And I'm so happy to hear that you included her. That is just such exciting and fantastic news. And I hope the film helps her to not be overlooked. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of younger women who have come up to me at screenings and said, you know, really angrily, like I was a woman's studies major at Smith College and I never heard about Cher Height, you know, and, and variations on that theme. So there has been a history of qualitative research of women gravitating to that and um, and being interested in that and trying to push that forward as a legitimately seen type of social science research and it being kind of dismissed or pushed under or not published or whatever because it's not seen as legitimate science or hardcore science or whatever. And I feel like Cher was kind of ahead of the curve in terms of how she was dealing with her methodology. But at the same time, she was, because she wanted it to be taken seriously and she wanted to be taken seriously, she was, you know, she was trying to kind of do something really groundbreaking in terms of a work of qualitative research, but at the same time kind of say, no, these are legitimate scientific numbers. And 
I mean, I believe she had the right to do that, but I, I think she became easy prey for people who wanted to dismiss her and kind of write her out of the canon, maybe because, you know, initially they didn't like the work, but even later, I think there were some women who didn't want to be associated with her and her work because she had been painted out to be this kind of volatile, femme fatale kind of strange character in the media. And and I think women were struggling hard enough to get their own work to be taken seriously. But I'm not a social scientist, so I'm very curious like how you would answer that question. Yeah, well, I think historically, women faced a higher bar than men did in terms of what they needed to do to establish their credibility or authority in a given research area. And I think the fact that Cher didn't have a a PhD and was kind of running this research independently provided some fuel and ammunition for people to dismiss her work or to not take it seriously or to look at it as maybe being biased. And so, you know, there's always been (laughs) as sexism when you look at the academy and research and, and data. I think that's been changing in recent years, especially as the social sciences have actually become more female dominated. So as a field in psychology, you know, most people who are entering the profession now, and not just psychology, but also sociology, anthropology, other fields, women are outnumbering men, often by very large margins. And so I think things there are changing, but outside of the academy, you actually see this big backlash against the social sciences more broadly. You know, now that it's become a female-dominated field, people are taking it less seriously. So that sexism is is still there. But if you're working within the academy itself, I think it's a little bit different in that it's not the male-dominated field it once was. But yeah, just a few of my rambling thoughts on that, but we could do a whole separate podcast on that particular issue, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess, you know, because her contribution was so massive and so undeniable compared to many others, and even the story of how she did the research and how it came to be. And even if you want to talk about like the things that are amazing about it and the things that may have been flawed about it or whatever, still the story is so important. And it's such a huge fundamental story out of, you know, the history of sexuality in our culture and feminism in general. So the fact that it has disappeared so much, I think it just speaks to the power of this type of cancellation, you know? And my hope is like, if we can see that, we can hopefully intervene. We can, maybe if we understand that phenomenon better, we can see when it's happening to somebody else and push back against it. I like that you're an optimist (laughs) because it's easy to look around right now and be very pessimistic. Well, we don't have a choice, right? That's how I feel. I don't think we have a choice. (laughs) So what's next for you, Nicole? What are you working on now? And do you have plans to do any more documentaries on other sexologists? Oh, I mean, I would be completely fascinated to do more work around sexology. My next couple of films are not, well, they have not been announced yet, so I can't talk about what they are. But the two things that I'm kind of really excited about are they are both about feminism and about women though not sexologists but um you know i actually when i first became a documentary filmmaker one of my first films was a feminist film and i found that i got literally no interest in it i think it was really this was the mid 90s and i think feminism was just like this had become this kind of old stale horrible thing in people's minds and so I kind of went and found other really compelling and incredible things to focus on, but 
it's been really fantastic to delve into this world and to be so inspired by the example of of what Sher had accomplished. And so I am really excited to continue to explore similar themes in my upcoming work. It really is a fantastic film, and I hope my listeners go out and see it. And uh, we look forward to whatever comes next, because you're a very talented filmmaker. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Nicole. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to see The Disappearance of Share Height? Yeah, there is a website called ShareHeightDoc.com that is, um, and IFC Films is distributing our film, The Disappearance of Share Height. It's currently in theaters in LA and New York, and it'll be expanding to more cities in December and hopefully online early next year um, on streaming platforms. So yeah, please do go see it. And um, thank you so much for having me on your show. It was so great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you as well. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Hold up. 